Eugene Peterson has said, if we do not internalize the word of God, then it's just gossip about God. We're trying to internalize it. I'm trying, because Tim has taught me, Tim Mela has urged me in this direction accidentally. I'm trying to memorize scripture and hoping that you will too. So I'm going to recite Psalm 51 from Jesus' version, the NIV 84. If you notice any discrepancies, they purely owe to translation errors and not to my mistakes. This is Psalm 51. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when Nathan came to David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassions, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was evil, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me, and surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from all my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my lips will sing your righteousness. Lord, open my lips that my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice, or I bring it. And you take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. These you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings brought to you. Then there will be bulls on your altar. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, on a morning like this, when we see something as lovely, splendid, and privileging as baptizing another of these little ones that you've entrusted to our care, we give you our astonished praise. Thank you for the families that forged and formed Tim and Ellie, the parents and grandparents who took these same vows and carried them out, and who saw you realize your promises in the life of their child, and now a family tree has been changed. Thank you that so many of us here have been acted on by you. We're asking for you to do it again. We're asking that we would meet with you somehow or another here so that we would leave here today and we'd think, what if it's true? What if I can live a whole different way because 
because God is true. Oh, let us discover in a fresh way how to live without hiding, how to live without self-defense, how to live as people who have tasted and who regularly live off of the oxygen of your mercy. Come, help us breathe this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Timer. David here in Psalm 51 is giving us a rubric for confession. He is showing us how you are to do this thing in various kinds of moments, how you come clean with God. Because my guess is that there's nobody in here who hasn't had some moment or another where something has been revealed to you, a mirror has been held up to you, someone has found out something you didn't want them to find out, and you're faced with what you were trying to conceal, and you say, how did I get like this? I can't believe that I'm somebody like this, who's done a thing like this, or who's been away like this. My life has become an episode of House of Cards. Now, this is a show that you should not watch. Well, you can watch it if you want to. I'm not your mom. But I'm not advocating the show by mentioning it now, even though I realize I'm enticing you and you're probably going to have to go watch it and binge it the rest of the evening. House of Cards is a show about Frank and Claire Underwood from South Carolina, and they are ruthless. And the oxygen that they breathe, the thing that intoxicates them more than any bourbon, is power. And they have wiled their way into the White House. They are now the President and First Lady, the POTUS and FLOTUS of the United States. Those are acrostics if you don't know. But you know the problem is, to get there, they've sacrificed everything. And they have held back nothing. They would do whatever it takes. Whoever they have to step on, lie to, abuse, cheat, steal, kill, kill. They don't care. They're getting to the White House. But the problem is, is when you get in this position you're always looking over your shoulder you never know when a journal is going to appear that has the deepest darkest damningest secrets in it and there's always somebody who's got some goods on you and so you have to constantly be taking care of some little brush fire that might take over your whole life and you realize indeed their whole life is a house of cards hey a good title for a series because it's built on flimsy structures one little false move and the whole thing could come tumbling down one little revelation that is believed and sticks could destroy them entirely David King David has had a similar kind of situation happen to him he has been found out by God he can't hide he has no remedy And so he gives us a way to go to God. In fact, he has come upon and committed some sins in which there was no provision in the law. You know, in the the laws of God, there was all kinds of ceremonial provision for people who had done rotten things. 
to train them. You know, when there's sin, there's got to be a death. So you kill a lamb. You kill a goat. You kill a bull. If you're poor, you kill a little bird. But here's what happened to you if you committed adultery or if you committed murder. You got killed. And the image of God is taken. God says, take take the man who did it. When a man commits adultery, stone him to death. That was the provision of the law. So there was no out. There was no bargaining that David had before him. And do you know the story? I just read the superscription, or I just recited the superscription, mostly, so far as you know. The story goes like this, and I think it's important to know at the time of the year, spring, when kings go off to war, David was in Jerusalem. And, you know, there would be like a little hyperlink, and if you're reading online and you clicked on when kings go off to war, and it would go to the Wikipedia page, and it would say, in the ancient Near East, when kings would go off to war, the king would always go with the people, and so the fact that it's saying that David didn't go means, you know, he was he's getting soft, he's getting a little arrogant. Not doing what he needed to do. Well, one night he couldn't sleep, and he, so he goes out, and lo and behold, it wasn't an ugly woman, but a beautiful woman. It's always a beautiful woman. She's taking a bath. What was she doing? Was she? T- I don't know. I don't know. But you know what happened from there. He invited her over. Next thing you know, she sends word. He gets a little text message, a little Snapchat saying, guess who's expecting? It disappears, so nobody knows but the two of them. So he sends word to the front lines. To Joab, it says, hey, send Uriah, her husband, back home. I think I can fix this. I've been watching House of Cards. I figured out how I can cover my tracks. If I can just get Uriah to come home, it'll look like he got a little leave. They're expecting a baby boy come spring, if it come the fall. Woo! Only thing is, Uriah, doggone him and his integrity, just shames David because he comes home and David says, hey, man, get a nice supper. Have, you know, spend some time with your wife. It's lonely out there in the prairie, ain't it? And doggone it, if Uriah won't go home, and he won't eat, and he won't sleep with his wife, instead he sleeps outside on the floor. So David says, well, maybe I'll just get him drunk. Who knows what a man might do when he's drunk? So he gets him drunk, and doggone it, if Uriah doesn't sleep outside with the servants once again, and David says, what's wrong with you, man? And Uriah says, well, my boys, my brothers are out there sleeping in tents on the ground. They're eating MREs or, you know, locusts and honey or something. And I can't, I can't be with my wife. They don't get to be with their wife. I can't have a fancy supper. I can't hit the golden corral while they're out there eating Katie Dids. So I'm trying to contemporize things for you here in case you don't understand ancient Near Eastern stuff. So anyway, so David says, okay, well then I I learned this also from House of Cards. I guess what we'll do is we'll send him to the front lines and get him killed. And then he'll be killed and then I can marry his wife and all will be cool. So he does that. Bathsheba becomes his wife. She's pregnant. Uriah's dead. He's out of the picture. But the one person that David hadn't thought about entirely in this whole scenario was the one person with whom all of us have to deal all the time. Because even if you can hide everything from everyone, you can't hide nothing from this one, you see. And so if God loves you, you know, the whole idea is if you exalt yourself, 
You'll be humbled. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. So when a person gets to be exalting themselves, or a person gets to where they're concealing a bunch of stuff, if God really, 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 really likes you, then he's going to have to really, 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 really expose you. And so he does. And he sends his prophet, Nathan, to David. And he says, David, come here. Come here. Let me tell you a story. Because he's a a southern guy. He he works in a garage. Hey. No, he doesn't talk like that. But it's fun. He says, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was this fella. Poor fella, really. Sweet guy, good guy, but didn't have much money. And all he had was one little poor, little, little lamb. Oh, he loved that lamb. It was a cute little lamb. Went by the name of Bathsheba. No, 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 never mind. Just a lovely little lamb. He treated it like it was one of his own kids, like a little pet dog or something. He fed it from his table, and he'd, he'd kiss it and hug it and cuddle it. And it was just like one of their own family members. It was sweet to watch him with that little lamb. He loved it so much. But there was also this rich fella. Rich fellow had plantations all over the place. J.R. Ewing, you might have heard of him. And he had all kinds of sheep and all kinds of goats and all kinds of bulls and cattle. He was a regular wealthy rancher. Well, so happens one day a visitor comes to his house. And the visitor comes to his house. You know, he's a hospitable rich man, you know. So he's got to offer him something good to eat. And you know what he does? He goes over to that poor fella and takes his one little ewe lamb when he's got himself... Four million sheep. And he takes that one from that boy. The only thing he's got. He takes it, kills it, feeds it right up to the fellow. David is listening to this. And his skin is crawling. It's starting to boil. He did. What in the? Kind of like you when you watch the evening news. The only reason you watch the evening news is so you can feel like you're much better than all those people on there. I can't believe that. He did what to that? What in the who the hum the why? And you, you just get unintelligible. David said, he's got to pay back four times. That man deserves to die. And then Nathan says, oh, McFly. <laughs> I just told you a story. Of, I just told you an autobiographical story. You should hear that story as autobiographical. You're the man. You stole the lamb. And David, and this is a good parental tactic. Most people, if you come at them head on, they're going to get defensive or they're going to run away or they're going to fight you back. You come subversive-like, tell them a story, tell it slant. Emily Dickinson said it, tell the whole truth, but tell it slant. Comes at them sideways, sneaks up on them. Before you know it, they're embroiled in the story and they say, oh my goodness, and that story became a mirror. And he recognized himself in it and he was... Destroyed. And this psalm is him realizing what he did. What he had tried to conceal but now could conceal no more because he knew God had the goods on him. That's a long, long setup. The descriptions will be shorter. First point is this. If you know what God is like, you can be more, more forthcoming with what you're like. If you know what God is like, you can be more forthcoming about what you're like. The second point is going to be this. Honesty precedes healing. Another one's going to be those who make use of confession don't have to live in constant confusion. And last of this, you must agree to live by pity. If you know what God is like, you can be more forthcoming about what you're like. Honesty precedes healing. Those who use confession don't have to live in as much confusion. 
You must agree to live by pity. Let's rock and roll. If you know what God's like, you can be more forthcoming about what you're like. David, when he has had himself introduced, as it were, to himself, by a great act of mercy, really, he drops his pretenses and he comes to God and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. He knows this. As I told you right before the offering, it's far better to fall into the hands of God than it is to fall into the hands of men because with the Lord, there's mercy. You know, even after David was told that the son of his union with Bathsheba was going to die, what did he do for seven days? He fasted and he prayed because you know what he thought? Even though God said he was going to die, he might change his mind. That's how merciful he is. David knew that the God he was dealing with was a God who even in death could bring him back to life. He was the God who alone could wash him, cleanse him, could blot out the the vomit of his sin and take it all away, who could scrub clean the mildew, that growth that had happened on the inside of him. And so he came clean and he knew what God was like so he could be very forthcoming with what he is like. He offers no defense. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. I've had this catastrophic disorder of sin since the time my parents conceived of me. I was born like this with this allergy to you. I've been acting it out my whole life in some way or another. There is no hope for me unless you clean me, unless you have mercy on me, unless you wipe me up, unless you remake me. Because he knows what God is like, he can be really honest about what he is like. He can come clean. This is one of the really pragmatic, as Walt Wangerin would say, pragmatic and immediate aspects of our salvation. Is that we get to believe without pretense and without presumption that God already knows. So when we come totally clean with him about who we are and what we've been, we can count not on the fact that we've made a good enough case for him to forgive us, but that it is his inclination, it is his divine DNA, 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 God, his divine DNA, which makes him predisposed to show pity, to show mercy, to show compassion, to cleanse of sin. He likes to forgive people. He likes to lift up those who are bowed down. He likes to wipe away tears. He likes to bring life out of death. That's what he likes to do. And the other thing David knows is, he knows what God's like so he can offer what he's like to him very honestly. He realizes that ultimately, the violation of God's laws is not like the violation of some arbitrary rule that doesn't make any sense to you. You're driving along a highway in Montana and the last living thing you saw was a bear off in the distance. And there's a sign that says 25 miles an hour and you're incredulous. What? This doesn't really happen. I'm just pretending, right? 25 miles an hour, I should be able to go 125 miles an hour. There's nothing here. It's flat. It's straight. I should get the fly. The rule seems arbitrary. Who's going to be hurt if I violate the rule? Maybe an elk. I'll just eat it later. Hunters in here, don't you? You'd kill it. If you the rules sometimes seem arbitrary, but you see, when God gives laws, they're not arbitrary. They're personal to him. So when David disregarded God's laws and he violated this social fabric, when he graffitiized, 
God's intentions on the earth by committing adultery, lying, covering it up, involving other people in the sin, murder. All of this was a violation, but it wasn't just a violation of rules that meant nothing to God. It was a violation of God's person because the rules are connected to him. He says, you despised my word by ignoring me. This is why Jesus can say such audacious things as, if you love me, you will obey me. If you're not interested in following Jesus, if you're not interested in obeying Jesus, you can't honestly think that you love him because when you love somebody, you want them to influence you. And when God commands us to do something, it's not because he likes watching us do weird tricks. Like, you sit here for 48 hours and I'm going to put a milk bone right in front of your nose. (laughs) And just see how much I can torture you. That's a dog reference. But that's not what God does, you see. He's, he's train, he is training you. But his laws are for our good, for the world's good, for the community's good. And they're always connected to him. So to disregard what God says to do is basically extending the middle finger to God. I don't care what you say. Now, we don't realize we're saying that at the moment. But that is what we're saying. Breaking his laws is personal because God is behind them and connected to them. If you know what he's like, you can be forthcoming with what you're like and you can say, oh man, that's why David can say, against you and you only have I sinned. When I broke your laws, I actually broke your heart. So as a parent, I'm trying, we're trying to help our children connect obedience, not just to the rules that we set, but to the people who set them. It's good for kids to want to please their parents. Kids, do you hear that? It's good for you to want to please your parents. It's good for you to want to please your coach, your teacher, your boss. It's good for you to please and want to please people who are in authority over you. Because behind every rule that God gives is his care, his character, his person. David knows that, and that's why he knows he's broken it. And now he knows he's got to have God fix him so he can be really honest. If you realize that, the other thing that can happen too is it can liberate you from some of the worthless guilt that you have about things that don't apply. David Hansen has a great saying. It says, he talks about worthless guilt, about things that do not apply. And I was thinking about this. I, re- I read this uh, article a woman was writing. And she was talking about mother bingo. What? Mom guilt bingo, she called it. These are worthless guilt about things that don't apply. But this is what happens to you when the voices of others get louder than the voice of God. Or you don't know what God's like. You've... you've You've not spent enough time getting to know what God's like, and so you imagine that he's like the voices of everybody around you who cares about uh, stupid stuff. And so here's what mom guilt bingo is. It's just kind of like a, it's just a drawing out of the how to, any number of things that you might get to feel guilty about in a given day. You had a birthday party for your three-year-old daughter, and it wasn't Pinterest worthy. (laughs) You didn't keep breastfeeding your child for the entire first year of their life? Hill of the Hun. Your preschooler knows a four-letter word. You forgot class picture day. Or worse, you sent your kid without combing their hair. You have in your refrigerator and in your pantry products that contain within them high fructose corn syrup. You may as well have Ajax in the grape juice bottle. Wicked, thoughtless parent. You threw away some of their artwork. (laughs) You 
went to Bilo and bought produce that was neither locally grown nor organic, you might be the devil. There are a lot of things that we put on ourselves because we're not accustomed to acclimating ourselves to the mercies of God, to how favorable He is towards human life, towards how graciously disposed He is towards us, and it makes us utterly severe, filled with dread of the severity of others, and utterly severe with ourselves, and it's all an indication we just don't know much about who He is. You are allowed to let yourself off the hook on the fructose corn syrup, okay? I said so. If you know what God's like, you can be more forthcoming with what you're like. And you can realize, you know what? He's God, I'm not. I can't be ubiquitous mom or dad. I can't do everything in a perfect way. Those are mistakes, or maybe not even mistakes. And then there's actual sins, which are affronts to God. In either case, I can own up to these very honestly before God if I know what he's like. Secondly, you know, honesty precedes healing. One of the things that David is realizing here is that he's coming before God and he's just opening up. He's saying, here, do an internal audit. He says it in other places, search me and know me and find any offensive way in me and lead me into the life, path of life everlasting. And he's doing that too. He's opening up myself. I've, I know my transgressions, my sins ever before me. Um, I've, done a, I've done a study of my life and I've been sinful ever since I can remember. It's not just my actions. It's, it's a, a fungal growth within me. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to make me whiter than snow. I need you to heal me, to let me hear joy and gladness. <sighs> there is this great pleasure that comes from realizing that when you come to God, you don't bring a resume, you bring your rap sheet. The story that Jesus told, the story that Jesus told about some who were confident in their own righteousness and look down on everybody else he told the following story about a man who goes up to the temple with another man and, and the one guy he stands out there and he's been doing some internal and in, you know inventorying and he <clears throat> in his uh, curriculum vitae and he starts reading off and he says dear god let me congratulate you on a number of benefactions you have made to the world in the creation of me First of all, well done with the hair. Next, my biceps, fantastic. Third, have you ever seen anybody as generous as me? Ha! Fasting, impeccably exemplary. Well done, God, well done. I can't even imagine how proud you must be to even know me. And not this guy here, this ambulance-chasing lawyer, not him, but me, God. Woo! Well done. He drops the mic and he walks off. And then Jesus says, well, there was another dude, though, who, whose sin also had been ever before him. And he knew that it was against God and God only that he had sinned, and so he couldn't even really meet God in the eye. You know how that works. If a kid's guilty or you yourself are. It's hard to look somebody straight in the face, ain't it? He couldn't look God in the eye. He looked away, beat his chest, said, Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. He laid himself out. Because he knows that honesty precedes healing, you see. You've got to come clean if you want to get washed up. And the thing is, is no matter how awful this guy surely felt as he walked away, and, and most assuredly, 
He didn't feel so good. Jesus said, I tell you what, the fellow who couldn't look God in the eye, he walked away right with God. And the fellow that was congratulating God, well, he's got a lot of work to be done on. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself is going to be humbled. That's why God, anytime you are living a hidden life, anytime you are arrogant, you are saying, my will and my way is the most important way, if God loves you, he's going to have to knock down the house of cards a little bit. It's not because he's mean. It's because he's got to put you in the place where you can be exalted. He's got to humble you so that you can quit looking down on everyone else, including him, and so that you can be in the position of open-handedness to receive a healing from him. If you know what God's like, you can be forthcoming about what you're like. Honesty precedes healing. Those who make use of confession don't have to live in constant confusion. You know, one of the things that David does here as he's offering God himself is he's apparently done this to Nathan. He's confessed to Nathan. Nathan knows his sin. And it's possible that this here was a form that you would give to the priest. This was certainly used in worship. It's been used in worship for 2,000 years as a, as a way of coming to God. Bonhoeffer said, and a lot of these are going to be repeats over this Lenten series, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. The best gift that David got, King David got, when Nathan told him the story and said, you were the man, was he got the freedom of being exposed. It's terrifying at first. It's like a death. It's a death. I remember thinking early on in my pastoral ministry, a fellow who was addicted to drugs, who was lying to his family, who put his family in a very bad situation, he had become so accustomed to lying, he couldn't stop lying even when it didn't matter. He would lie to me about stuff, and I'd think, dude, if you're going to lie, get a little return on the investment. You're lying about stuff that doesn't even get you anything. Why are you doing this? I, I didn't say that. I wouldn't say that, but that's what I thought in my head. You're just lying about nothing. He couldn't help it. He, he was so confused. But as soon as he got found out, he was the freest man on the planet. Because everybody knew what God knew. He knew, like, I'm a big, rebellious, deceitful dunce who's let everybody down. There's kind of a, <sighs> that comes when you feel like that. Because you're not having to hide anymore. You know how much time you spend hiding? No, I don't hide. I'm not, I'm not suggesting there's a lot of murderers in here. But how much time do you worry about someone thinking something wrong about you? Or coming over to your house? You ever despise anybody who drove up your driveway? They're going to see that we actually live here. Any other time they've been here, we've made it like no one lives here. They're going to see that we actually have to make messes and we actually eat food and wear clothes and things. And we have to take off our shoes. We have to put them someplace and we never put them in the right place. There's so many things that we're hiding about. And it's very exhausting. And one of the gifts that God has given to you, and I'm going to keep saying it, is you need to tell your sins to someone, but not to everyone. Huh? Some of you need to be told this. Tell your gunk to somebody who's wise, who knows the mercy of God, who's discreet, who can handle it, who's demonstrated maturity and keeping confidences, who can apply God's forgiveness to you. Some of you need that. It'll liberate you. It'll free you. It'll let you have an existential sense 
Existential, that's a big fancy word for you'll feel it in your bones. That God has really, really, really taken your sins away from you. And you don't have to live in the confusion of, is this a big deal? Has God forgiven me? Has he not forgiven me? Have I confessed enough? Ah, Stop that. Deal with the public death of a sinner. Say it out loud. It's humiliating. And then be dissolved by the goodness of someone saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pronounce that you are forgiven by the command of Jesus Christ. He said, whoever forgives sins on earth in my name, they're forgiven. Boom. You're forgiven. But some of you need to be told, stop telling everybody. Don't confess everything about your life to everyone you meet on on the interwebs. That's not helping you. You got that? All right. That's all I'm going to say about that because we're we're on a trot here. If you know what God's like, you can be more forthcoming about what you're like. Honesty precedes healing. We're only as sick as our secrets. Those of you who make use of confession don't have to live in constant confusion. You can get unconfused and healed from your sins very often by telling somebody in the name of Jesus and letting them be a proxy authority of Jesus in your life. But you don't have to tell everybody and you shouldn't tell everybody. Lastly this, you must agree to live by pity. The one thing that David knows is that he's got nothing. He's got no resume. He's just got a rap sheet. And so if he's going to stand in his death, which anytime you confess, anytime you say you're sorry and you mean it, it's a death. When you reveal yourself, it's a death. You may have heard me say before, I find myself with anybody else that's fine with my wife with whom I have the most relationship. Sometimes to say I'm sorry to her, I would rather be mugged. I would rather somebody beat me in the head. I don't, it's pride, it's arrogance, it's ugliness, but it feels like such a death that I can't endure it. It's hard. I'm sure I'm the only one like that. But you and I have to learn to live by pity, which is to say, realizing that the reason we're in relationship with God, the reason we're in relationship with anybody else, is because they're putting up with a whole lot of stuff about us, and that's okay with them. Have you ever said this to yourself or heard someone say it? I believe God's forgiven me. I just can't forgive myself. You said this? I just can't forgive myself. I know God's forgiven me. I just can't forgive myself. And that sounds pious. And I'm not getting on to you if you said that. But you know, one of the things that Dallas Willard says when you say that, what you're doing, is you're refusing to live by pity. You're refusing to live by mercy. What you're thinking is, is that the reason everyone should like you is because of the general awesomeness that you emanate. What we want to happen is we want people, we want to walk into the room and people be like, Woo! There's the smartest, handsomest, most athletic, most witty, most compassionate, most whatever, with the shiniest hair person I've ever met. Man, I can't wait to get around them more. But here's the fact. I'm going to tell you something that's going to be hard for you to hear. If I interviewed anybody close to you and I said, I know you like your husband. Kind of. I, I know you like your wife, you know, sort of. I know you like your roommate pretty well. But tell me, what things do you have to really put up with about them? Do you think they would have to think for more than about a one hundredth of a millisecond? That's a very short amount of time. They wouldn't have to even think. Because everybody you know that's in relationship with you is actually putting up with a whole lot of stuff to be in relationship with you. They don't just like you because you're fantastic. They like you in spite of the fact that you're not so fantastic. You know, that hurts my feelings, though. 
But David realizes that's the only way we got with God. So you have to say, you've got to clean me here. I stand here, and the only thing I can offer you is a mildew heart, a septic system in my insides, a dossier, a record that should have me uh, a recipient of capital punishment. That's all I've got to offer you. Here. And he has the audacity to say, have mercy on me. Clean all this mess up. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Call me back into life. Grant me a willing spirit. And then you know what I'll do? I'll teach transgressors your ways. I'm going to tell everybody where they can find mercy. I'll be like a Steve Brown used to say, a, a beggar telling others where I found bread. There's showers over there with God. You can get cleaned up. You don't have to live a lie. You can get utterly, totally clean. If you know what God's like, you can be more forthcoming about what you're like. Honesty precedes healing. Those who use confession don't have to live in constant confusion. You must agree to live by pity, by mercy. I close with this story. When I was in college, the first time I ever lived in a home situation that was not my own home, I lived in a cabin with Marshall Brock and some others. Some of you may have heard me tell this story before. And I think about after five minutes of living there, our bathroom, <laughs> I should back up and say, the bathroom in my house living up, growing up was pristine. I mean, reflections off of the sink and mirror. and There was no soap scum, no hair anywhere. It just looked like it was in a magazine. It was so nice. And so I naturally came to the conclusion that I was a very tidy fellow. So then I was living with Marshall and Adam Neener and Billy Lavin, these guys in a cabin, and within five minutes of our common life together, it might have taken longer than five minutes, I thought, if I take a shower in this bathroom, I'm going to catch a disease. If I breathe in too deeply, I'm going to instantly catch some kind of, you know, virulent strain of bacteria that's going to cause me to have a brain clot, a blood clot in my brain. It was terrifying. And it was easy to think, what's wrong with you people? Why, does it, why are there weeds coming up out of the toilet? Why, why are there mushrooms growing from the mirror? How can that even happen? Why do I think I'm going to get more dirty when I take a shower than clean? But it turns out, as I pondered this, that I wasn't so clean after all. And Kathy can corroborate this and tell you more about it. <laughs> I'm like one of the messiest people I know. No comments. I had a servant, and I didn't know about it. A servant who humbled herself, who got on her knees and scrubbed up our filth at my house. But I didn't even know. I thought I did something. There was this lady at our house, this maid that we had. Her name was Mom. We've got one. At, our boys have one at our house, too. Don't take her for granted, fellas. We need her. But my mom cleaned up all She made it look like we were so clean. By her sacrifice, by her being the slave, by her being the servant, we got to be clean. That's what God's like. He's revealed himself as Jesus Christ who says, I will make you clean. I'll get down on my knees. I'll be the slave. I'll be the servant. I'll take the filth on me so that you get the cleanliness. I'll drink the bleach so that you can be white as snow. We must humble ourselves, though, and, and honor him 
and realize that's what he's like. He wants it to be clean for us. He wants you to be clean and to be free. So if you know what he's like, you can be more forthcoming about what you're like. You can be honest, which will precede your healing. You can make use of confession so you don't have to live in confusion. And you can live all the rest of your days by pity. Then you don't have to worry about your life being a house of cards. Because nothing can knock it down if it's fortified by the God who brings life out of death. Who brings spotless clean out of the most ridiculous filth. Trust the Savior. Go to him often. Amen.